This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Welcome to Primal Screen, a Triple R film criticism show and podcast. I'm your host, Paul Anthony Nelson, and with my regular co-host, Flick Ford, still on leave, the Rogues Gallery of Special Guest Hosts continues. Joining me in the studio for her Primal Screen debut is the resident book reviewer for The Breakfasters, Brooks for Bre- Books for Breakfast, Films for Dinner, Fee Wright. I wouldn't have it any other way. <laughs> Lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us, Fee. And joining us via the magic of Zoom for the first time in a couple of months is a voice familiar to all uh, Primal Screen and Ex-Plato's Caves listeners, Dr. Stuart Richards. Thank you for having me. Greetings from Radelaide. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, as ever. Um, or forever rad. Um, we'll be diving into a trio of new releases. First, we'll hole up in a lavish Manhattan brownstone and spy on the neighbours with Amy Adams and an all-star cast in Joe Wright's Netflix thriller Woman in the Window, or rather, The Woman in the Window. Then we'll discover the line between indie filmmaker and serial killer is thinner than you think with Gillian Wallace Horvat's indie horror comedy I Blame Society, and finally, we'll take the opportunity to steal and deal hash with Isabelle Huppert in Jean-Paul Salomé's crime comedy drama, The Godmother, although it seems to be known everywhere else in the world as Mama Weed. I've seen that too, Mama Weed. Yeah, which sounds like the punchline to a kid's joke. <laughs> Why is the couch wet? Because dot, dot, dot. <laughs> Thank you. To... My partner was the inspiration for that joke. Um <laughs> Why is the beach wet? Because the seaweed. <laughs> um, also, not that seaweed on a couch, that, that almost sounded really bad. As you listen to us chatting about these films, pre- please feel free to hit us up on our social media channels and leave a comment. Just search for Primal Screen on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Now it's time for our Primal Screen News Bulletin for the week. Last week we bid farewell to Charles Grodin, one of the great underrated comic actors. Known for his deadpan, quietly seething on-screen persona, Grodin was a graduate of the Actors Studio under Lee Strasberg and Stella Adler, made his film debut in 1954's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, spent the late 50s and and the entire 1960s acting on TV and stage, uh, directing for Broadway, uh, before a pivotal role in Mike Nichols' Catch-22 and then the lead in Elaine May and Neil Simon's 1974 hit The Heartbreak Kid made him a movie star. 
After starring in a rash of uh, late 70s and early 80s films like King Kong, Heaven Can Wait, Real Life and Miss Piggy's paramour Nicky Diamond in The Great Muppet Caper, uh, he's perhaps most famous today for his roles in Elaine May's Ishtar, Martin Brest's Midnight Run, and as the harried dad constantly stressed out by giant St. Bernard in Beethoven, as well as films like Heart and Souls and Dave. Also a popular chat show uh, guest who would pretend to be annoyed by his hosts, Groden retired from acting in the mid-90s to become a political pundit, of all things, on CNBC, MSNBC and even CBS's revamped 60 Minutes, before returning to acting after a 12-year hiatus in the late 2000s and popping up in supporting roles in films for directors like Barry Levinson, Noah Baumbach and Taylor Hackford. It was rumoured, and I couldn't find any substantiation of this online, but I swear I read this in an article years ago, that uh, during this period, Groden would only consider roles if they were being filmed within a certain mile radius of his Connecticut home, <laughs> which is amazing. Well, that sounds like um, Aretha Franklin, who wouldn't get on a plane for decades. She would only go within a se- perform within a certain radius. So uh, you know what? That's the second person I've heard that for. So now I, I'm, I'm, it's legit. Fantastic. The third one is Lars von Trier only makes films in Denmark because he's mm. terrified of flying. Yes, yes. Mm. There you go. It's three people. It's real. <laughs> if you can do it, do it. I love it. Exactly. <laughs> Groden, you know, if lockdown has taught us nothing else, um, keep it keep it at home. Groden died of bone marrow cancer, aged eighty six. Vale, Charles Groden. The St Kilda Film Festival kicked off last Thursday night and continues until Saturday, May twenty ninth. An Academy Award winning quali- uh, sorry, an Academy Award qualifying festival which screens Australia's top one hundred short films, as well as a selection of music videos and special short film screenings, which this year include a focus on Indigenous actor, playwright, and activist Bob Mazza, under the the Under the Radar program of short films by filmmakers under twenty one. The Shifting the Gaze, Focus on Women Filmmakers, the documentary Merker's House of Dreams and the Augmented Reality installation, There May Be a Bird, as well as a series of talks, Q&As and the Free Filmmaker Development Program, a program of workshops, talks and forums which takes place this Saturday. For session times and tickets, uh, please check out the St Kilda Film Festival website at stkildafilmfestival.com.au. Finally, if you're a horror fan and are looking for a unique screening experience, look no further than Blood Ritual, a new monthly night of classic horror, gore, splatter, slasher and cult trash screenings curated by the fine folks at the Melbourne Horror Film Society at the excellent Coburg Cafe and Bar True North this Saturday night. You can drink from $10 skulls of Moondog beer and or special cocktails and munch on free popcorn. And did I mention that entry is free? The movie begins as soon as darkness descends upon us, so head down to True North at 2A Munro Street in Coburg this Saturday night to check out what devious delights Blood Ritual has in store. Screenings will happen on the last Saturday of every month, and you can head over to the Melbourne Horror Film Society, MHFS for short, or True North Facebook pages for more info. Now, please join us for our first film of the week. He beats his child. I'm a child psychologist. I know how to identify a child who's in danger, who's being abused. And I saw Alistair slap Ethan in my home yesterday. Wait, what? Yes, yes, yesterday. The Woman in the Window is the seventh feature film directed by Joe Wright. Living in denial... 
depressed pill-popping child psychologist Anna, played by Amy Adams, has holed herself up in her eerily vacant, uh, ill-lit Manhattan brownstone apartment for the last ten long months, separated from her husband and their eight-year-old daughter. While unsuccessfully grappling with agoraphobia and intense panic attacks, suddenly the Russells move in across the street, and brimming with curiosity, Anna decides to distract attention away from her problems by peeking into the lives of the unsuspecting new tenants. Then, one night, tensions flare, a deadly kitchen knife gleams in the dim light, and before long, someone ends up dead. Has troubled Anna, indeed, witnessed a gruesome scene of blood-stained domestic violence, or is her wine-addled mind playing cruel tricks on her? Fee, uh, did uh, you trust your senses with uh, the woman in the window? Well, oh, I had I had many many um, Hitchcockian feelings towards this this uh, this film, but most of my feelings. Can I just like get straight in and say sure. exactly? Yeah, sure. I had really high hopes for this because I looked at the credits. And I was like, Joe Wright, you've done Atonement, you've done Pride and Prejudice, you've done all these films I loved, um, Julianne Moore, Amy Adams, like this litany of actors, and I just just felt like something I might have seen in my undergraduate film class. I felt like <laughs> uh, it it felt um, a bit uneven at points, mm-hmm. um, and I um, I liked how it was. Lit. I thought it was had beautiful lighting, um, but after COVID, I felt like there was so many opportunities they could have had for a film about agoraphobia. Um, we're all being locked up inside, and there were so many opportunities, and there were just so many paths that were left not taken. I don't know. Have I just launched straight into bad vibes? I'm not <laughs> sure. What, what, what were everyone else's thoughts? Stewie? Uh, Trixie and Katya, the drag queens, watch this on their Netflix show. <laughs> yeah. And I haven't seen it yet, but I've seen a few of the, the comments they make and the scenes they pull out. And it makes me want this film remade purely with drag queens. Yes. Because <laughs> Isn't that best for every film, though? Yeah, it I is. feel like that's a because safety net. Because it's so camp. It is so over the top and so stupid. Like there's the scene where she like leans out the window going, where's your mother? <laughs> what happened to your mother? It's, I think, I mean, like looking at his filmography, like Atonement and, and all of that, you go in expecting this very serious horror film and that's what I did. But the more it unfolds, the more stupid you realise it is. I think there are some scenes that are beautiful. It's the mm. set design is incredible. Mm. Um, particularly where there's these uh, these like these deep shots of her looking at the window and you can see through to the apartment on the other side. Mm. But there are other scenes that are just so badly made. Like when they go to the roof, when she goes to the roof with David and it's just chop, 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 really, really quick. And mm. so the pacing is really uneven, I find, which makes, I guess, some of the clues really, really obvious. Mm. Like, mm. this scene's going to come back, keep watching. Yep. Um, so I liked it, but I didn't think it was great. <laughs> it, it's funny. Yeah. I, I got a huge vibe from this film. It's funny you mentioned I'm, I'm not sure when your undergraduate years were, Fee. But <laughs> this, with this, and there was another film out earlier this year that I didn't see, but from the trailer looked exactly like this, called The Little Things. It was a serial killer film with Denzel Washington and Rami Malek and Jared Leto. Between this and The Little Things, I feel like we're seeing the comeback of the 90s-style big star B-thriller programmer. Like, 
That, like, that was the other thing I was thinking of was Scream. Yeah, but I, I, I'm thinking mm. even less. Like I'm thinking films like Deceived with Goldie mm. Horn or Silent <laughs> Fall with, uh, you know, was it Richard Drives or something? And Just Cause with Sean Connery, The Jura with Demi Moore. Oh, like yep, yep. I'm thinking this sort of mm. B-thriller, like these films that would come out like be a low-grossing number two at the box office and then fade without a trace. You'd see them at the video store and it'd be a scared woman's face like looking around a doorframe. Much like <laughs> the image for a woman in the window that I'm currently <laughs> looking at. Yeah, that's like it, it gave me serious throwback vibes. And it, it's I'm not sure if anyone asked for this particular strain of film to be resurrected, but I'm kind of here for it. Like, um, no, Yeah, I, I agree with you both. Nothing here is particularly fresh or original. It cribs mercilessly from Hitchcock but let's be frank, who hasn't? Mm. But I had fun with this. I, like it is, like you both said, I think it feels like a real movie. Um, it is, you know, it is handsomely shot. It's beautifully lit. It's cast to the gods, even though they get very little to do, but, you know, play red herrings and shout at one another. <laughs> um, or enjoy Julianne it. Moore is great. I've yeah. got to say, jump in. She is excellent. She's in one scene. And she's excellent. She's so unhinged. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, totally crazy. Like to the yeah. You, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to. Cut no, you off. no, I was go. just going to say, you know that she's totally unhinged because she refers to this huge brownstone as a dump of a house, <laughs> and you're just like, are you what are you thinking, mate? This house is worth millions. Come on. <laughs> what is that documentary like? The Prince of Versailles, like that woman that built that gigantic mansion. They never go. Is this who this person is? Like, who walks into a three-story brownstone and goes, Ugh, "What a dump." <laughs> <laughs> um, it's and it's kind of like I think it's it's like it lacks pretension. And I was actually okay with the pacing. I thought it whizzed by at a really agreeable pace. And compared to a lot of other films I've seen lately, I was kind of like, you know what, this is what more do you want from Netflix on a Friday night? Like I, I actually, you know, it's very silly. Um, but you know, I, I like how the entire cast seem to enter and exit this seemingly locked down agoraphobics house at will. Like they're just like, it's a play. They're just constantly walking in and it's like, what are you doing here? It actually did feel like a play at, at certain points when you were talking before um, about how it was shot. Um, Stu, there were a number of scenes where you would have um, Amy Adams off to the side and she, be having some sort of emotional response and there'd be like the Greek chorus sort of watching her in the reverse shot. And those moments I feel like, particularly with um, they had very severe downlighting, I found that those were the moments that kind of kept me kept me there Yeah. Um, as opposed to some of the other parts where I was a bit rough on it when we first started talking. <laughs> but, yeah, those, those moments that you were saying, it felt like a play with people entering and exiting it at will. And there's even a point to that where she delivers a monologue where it's like, like harsh light, like a spotlight bang on her and it mm. slowly pulls out or pushes in rather. Um, yeah, but I, I kind of it, – it's, it's interesting. Like I, I think the cinematic feel of it is because it was actually intended for theatrical release. This was a 20th century Fox film that was made in 2019, which would explain why it doesn't really um, speak to the COVID situation mm. at all. Mm. Um, and when Disney swallowed Fox, this kind of got spat out to Netflix. Um, so it, it's, I, I think that sort of accounts for the unusually stacked cast and handsome mm. production values mm. in something that is otherwise a pretty, you know, sort of standard schlocky B thriller. Um, I do like I do like the script um, mm. where when there's like the reveal and the twist towards the end, there's nothing revealed that is left of centre. 
um, like, you know, in, in a very flags, B- it? Mm. yeah, it's all flagged and in a very kind of B grade fashion. There's flashbacks, <laughs> yes. um, which I love. In case you missed it, here's a really obvious clue. And there were a few lines that were delivered that had a double meaning, or that I was, oh, I should have thought of that. Like it's really obvious towards yeah. the end. But I did like that aspect of it where it wasn't challenging in any sense, but there was still a nice twist. Yeah, like it wasn't, un- nothing seemed unmotivated, which is, which is a plus mm. among films like this. Because um, often, you know, it's like, oh, and there's suddenly a, this person. And it's like, that makes no sense whatsoever. Whereas everything here within the silliness of the, of, mm. of the structure did make sense. I found the emotional reactions of some of the characters interesting at, at points. Yep. I'm thinking mainly of the um, the border mm, from yeah. so so she has this three story brownstone. If um, Amy Adams does, if you have not actually seen the film yet, and she has a border staying in her basement, um, who seems just really randomly angry mm. for like I couldn't. I felt like the only reason. Um, why they were adding in his his anger was to have like oh is he part of the mess oh, you know where is this the herring it is red like <laughs> uh, but I, I just I found him um, uh, they could have done a lot with him mm. and I feel like he was sort of a bit untapped as a character they could have strengthened that relationship um, a bit but again you're right you're talking in this like B nineties um, kind of. Uh, the video store movie, uh, with if that was what Joe Wright was going for, he hit the hit the button. <laughs> mission mission accomplished. I mean, Gary Oldman literally. I don't think there's a line of dialogue that Gary Oldman doesn't shout. Yes, he's uh, quite terse. As, as well. Yes, mm. he's terse and shouting every line, and you know that's what he's obviously been directed to do. Mm. Um, the the guy that plays the border is Wyatt Russell, who is the son Kurt Russell. Oh. and Goldie Horn, I believe. Oh. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, so okay. he's a pretty ter- like. Well, I mean, Kurt Russell is such a subtle actor. I really would have expected more from <laughs> his son. Exactly. <laughs> that was a moment where it almost lost me with him. Where there's like there's a scene where he goes particularly angry, mm. and I couldn't tell if it was like the script just being really, really stodgy, mm. or if he couldn't act, or if it was like particularly kind of. I don't know. There was something about that scene that threw me off where, yeah, that's when I realised it wasn't as polished <laughs> as what Joe Wright usually is. Mm. Mm. Yes. No, I think, uh, yeah, I, I think there was a definite mood that was perhaps being, yeah, I know, it's hard to know whether it was intentional or an, like whether they all thought they were making this A movie or whether it's like, no, we're making a B movie, let's just dig into it. Well, I mean, yeah. Amy Adams has very large shoulders in that case because she, she did a lot of the emotional carrying through through that work and her her performance through it I think was was what kept me going as I, well, yeah. I, I agree. I thought she was really good and there's a lot of, I've seen a lot of reviews on the internet that say decidedly the opposite. I think she's really unfairly maligned. I think she's really good in this. During her monologue, mm. it, it's she's performing it so well, but it's like when you go to a really bad high school production <laughs> and there's an actor in it that is so good yeah. and the material is awful, but yeah. she's so good, that it's is, still yeah. enjoyable. Yeah, she's almost selling it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what, what a note. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so if you want to see the equivalent of a bad high school play, um, no, it's, it's a little better. 
had. But fun. yeah, if you if you want to see a, a 90s B-thriller throwback, then you could do a lot worse than tune into The Woman in the Window, which is now screening on Netflix. Um, you're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Stuart Richards, Fee Wright, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. Uh, so please join us. Um, grab the popcorn and, and chock top and join us in the cinema for our second film. I don't really know what we're talking about right now. What we're talking about is you don't think I can do anything. You don't think I'll ever make a movie. You don't think I could kill somebody. You don't believe I can do anything. And it really hurts because I believe in you. I believe you can do your elevated sci-fi David Lynch graphic novel. I really do. Why can't you believe in me? I Blame Society is the debut feature film directed and co-written by Gillian Wallace Horvat. Uh, Horvat is a, a struggling filmmaker, uh, Horvat playing herself, senses her peers are losing faith in her ability to succeed as a director. So she decides to prove herself by finishing her last abandoned film, I Murderer, by committing the perfect murder for real. Uh, so, Stewie, uh, did, uh, did this have you considering the perfect murder? Yes, but not in a good way. <laughs> I uh, did not enjoy this one. I struggled with it. I think the concept is excellent. I think the ideas there on paper are p- the potential ingredients for a wonderful film. Um, when I saw the little synopsis of it, I was like, yes, this is going to be excellent. But 20 minutes in and I was, like, looking at my watch and I was like, oh, no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. This is it, – it, it does remind me of those really fun, silly films you make with your friends mm. and, you know, there's, like, a few kind of quippy lines there that are, are going to be great for social media. Um, and that's it, I think. There's just – there's so much of this that is, I think, trying to become like a meme or just something witty for Tumblr that I, I think it struggles to be this cohesive film as a whole. Like there are some great moments and I think the last 20 minutes of it are great when she really kicks things into gear. But overall, I found this really like not fun. I struggled with it considerably. Um, yes. Um, I'm sorry, because I wanted to like it, but I, I just think that the production quality is quite poor. Um, and, like, I get it's a low-budget indie film. Um, that doesn't really, I, I think, it still excuse poor filmmaking, I don't think. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, I'm sorry. <laughs> I know, yeah, this may become a theme fee. I... I... Also found the filmmaking poor, but I felt like it was deliberately poor. The fact that so often it was shot clearly on iPhones and, and things and they talk about her lack of money. I, I I felt like that was a conscious choice, but I also agree with you in the fact that it is, it is exceptionally Tumblr in that mm. each scene works well in isolation, but yeah. whether or not it carries the whole narrative for the whole film is another question. And there were some – 
hilarious jokes that um, I feel like they were only included because they were good jokes. There was um, and there's a scene in particular that I'm thinking of where they're, they're having a conversation in a cemetery and they're having an argument about what makes a good jump cut and they're like, no, no, that's not a jump cut and then they conduct a jump cut as as the yeah. film is going. And that was quite clever and not expecting that sort of – and he kind of had like that little snigger laugh like, oh, yeah, I see what you did there. But I was like this didn't actually bring anything to the to the film itself even though I enjoyed the joke in, in that moment as it were. Yeah, I, I don't want to be overly glib but I, I see what you did there. It could be like the subtitle for this film. <laughs> um, because, yeah, I'm the same. I really wanted to love this. And I just think it's far too uneven and a bit clumsy to really register as that viciously satirical punk rock feminist blast that it's going for. Yeah. Um, it was very girls, like HBO girls. Yeah, and that's it not. meets murder. <laughs> girls, yeah, like my favourite murder or something. Yeah, yeah. But on paper, that is excellent. <laughs> I would watch that. I don't, yeah. I, but... Like, I think she, I think Horvat is quite an endearingly odd screen presence. Like, I mm. actually quite liked her. Like, anyone who quotes Joseph Campbell and his hero's journey whilst breaking into someone's house, 10 out of 10, like, that's just <laughs> slow clap <laughs> cinematic brilliance. But then, in and of itself, is that enough to carry the whole film, yeah. as you guys were, yeah. were like, saying? Yeah, like you say, it's almost like sketches, isn't it? Yes, it is very sketchy. And some of the sketches yeah. are great. Like I found anything with the with the studio executives, oh, yeah, re- worked really well. Like and like just yeah. their complete like dis- weird Frances Ha. Yeah. That was yeah. one of the lines that they said that she was. She was a weird Frances Ha doing your weird Frances Ha. We're not sure we're picking up your weird Frances Ha vibe. <laughs> and there's like they're barely disguised contempt for everything she stands for, but mm. at the same time, because you know of of the tenor of the times, they're trying to co-opt her in so that she could just do all their work for them. Like it's and that feels like painfully accurate. They wanted the strong female voice, but they've already written the pictures that they're asking her to direct and write. But they wanted to put together a very extensive lookbook. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, and I think that there's I think there's, you know, and I like that her character was so morally dubious. And it's it's interesting because the script often tries to have it both ways, and sometimes I didn't mind that. Sometimes it grated on me. It's this thing: watching her doing dickish things and then addressing her behaviour to the camera as a saying it's a calculated plot twist. Mm. There's one scene in particular with someone that she's apparently very fond of that mm. happens that she lets happen that is kind of unforgivable, mm. um, unforgivable on a on a character basis, and sort of. I don't know, uh, inexplicable on a on a kind of a writing basis. But I find that interesting, like, like back to the film, because I, I agree. I feel like the film is an, an intriguing spin on the diary subculture as opposed mm. to found footage. Like this doesn't mm. qualify as found footage because she's the one putting the film together. Mm. But there's something about the film's visuals, not to mention those I hate digital blood splatter. It's one of my pet hates mm. and, and this has heaps of it. And it's so aggressively ugly to the eye that it's almost anti-visual, this film. Like, it's so ugly to look at. Like, there's there's moments where she'll tell character or actors or the real people in the mockumentary, don't sit in front of my B-cam. And then she sits in front of the B-cam and yes. then you get a cut of but her sitting in front of the thing. B-cam. This is the whole have it both ways thing the film is doing because it does all this. But 
it's, I think it's intentionally commenting on it, like mm. you said, Fee. And I feel like are we – because she's so dubious and we're, we're constantly on her side but doubting her and sort of thinking she's a dick but kind of liking her as well, is she actually supposed to be a good filmmaker or is she not successful because she's mm. actually not talented? And this is part of it. And the way mm. she's putting together the film, this ugly kind of – and it's like is that a comment in itself that this char- the character of Gillian Horvat isn't a talented filmmaker and mm. is sort of using – you know what I mean? Like using the yeah. moment to kind of make these excuses. And that's the thing. This film is frustrating in this way because it's almost impossible to critically evaluate it because it keeps doing this, this sort of pivot and twist and going, ah, oh, I didn't mean that. This is actually I'm saying that I did this and I'm saying that and yeah it's it it, it kind of becomes annoying. It's, I found yeah, it really sorry you, sorry. you no, no 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 um, no. I found it really annoying in a way where in that like that because there's so much you could write about this film if you wanted to talk about it having it both ways and and being um, ambiguous in that sense I think that's like on paper it's really interesting again um, yeah because. I found her really annoying and like she spends the entire film like whinging mm. and and so unlikable. But then she says, you know, I'm a really unlikable person. Yes, and, exactly. And, and, and it made me think like is that a really deliberate kind of move, her being so unlikable and unwatchable? Because we've had this like series of films of neurotic men doing bad things mm. and, and getting away with it and being kind of put up on a pedestal. Um that Being lovable made... losers and things mm. like that. Yeah. And well, even Woody Allen. Yeah. yeah. Like, I go really back to started thinking Hall. of Woody Allen on this because mm. she's kind of saying, like, Woody Allen gets away with it. Mm. Why can't I? And, and I was like, yes, good point. Still don't like the film. Like, And also, you know, I mean, no matter what we think of Woody Allen, his craft is always up there. You know what I mean? Like the, the guy can make a movie. Like, and that's the thing. It's not like Woody Allen is making, like, like he's definitely shares that with the character, but in terms of the films, it's like, but we can tell he can direct. Like with, with Horvat, it's like, I don't know. I genuinely don't know. I don't know whether this is a pitch perfect deconstruction of this person, of this character's art and psyche, or whether it's just a sloppy film that's making excuses for itself. I genuinely have no idea. It's really the more you think about it, the more confusing it gets mm. as well. Because all at various points, all I could see was references to other filmmakers. So we've just mentioned Woody Allen. There are a number of Hitchcock references, including one of the ways she does um, close-ups on herself is with a wheelchair and a pulley system, um, which I think was a shopping cart when yeah. Hitchcock did his first close-ups. And this one, I'm prepared to cop heat for this because of how ugly the film is shot, but. I saw a lot of Michael Mann and Manhunter because of the really specific 80s lighting style um, towards the end of the film when um, she's hanging out with that homeless guy. A lot of the really significant reds and greens, particularly from the outside of the building coming in, had that real um, that 80s Manhunter sort mm. of aesthetic, particularly from the end of, of Manhunter. And all I could see were these very specific nods. I mean, also the shiny knife a la Psycho, you know, there were all of these really specific nods that I couldn't tell, like you said, whether or not I loved how I hated her because I was like, oh, you suck. This is great. Like I can really get into not liking you. Like maybe 
one of the acts that you were describing that, that happens early on in the film that's so unforgivable, maybe they put that at the beginning so that you can just really dig into just, just hating her guts. Mm. Like, <laughs> you know, just really, just really feel free to just hate her. Like, maybe that's free. Maybe she's a genius. Maybe, this is what like, I mean. I, maybe in a decade she'll be like the next John Waters or something and she'll be like, you know, it was all a big joke. Yeah, like this is like I could, the, mm. the rating, I star rate films, I'm one of those people just because of my weird number-driven head. But <laughs> I, um, I gave this two and a half because it's like I literally don't know whether this is brilliant mm. or awful and it's frequently both. Mm. And like, yeah, like we said, there's, there's some of the scenes and sketches work quite well. The performances are mostly quite solid. I really liked Keith Paulson as her boyfriend, who was just constantly more and more annoyed. <laughs> and was... his FCP seven rip shirt. <laughs> yeah, <he's>, uh... <laughs> he only wears and, one shirt through the whole film. And it's Final Cut Pro seven RIP, which any editors <laughs> out there is is a pretty good joke. <laughs> Um, and you know, and there's a, and I like that there was a gender spread to her targets in terms of victims and satire as well. Mm. I like, I like that, that yeah. it wasn't strictly one thing or the other thing. And, but you know, like, this is the thing. I always feel like for a film like this to succeed, it needs a bit of a wizard with tone. And for all of Horvat's ambition and puckish wit, I don't know if she's quite up to it yet, but mm. maybe she is. I don't know. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, um, and I thought, you know, maybe if she'd enlisted an increasingly complicit cinematographer, like Man mm. Bites Dog, that mm. that might have added an extra dimension, like giving her someone to constantly play off. Yeah. And and to question her but then get involved with her and have that other perspective. Because she needed that constant validation. Yeah. Yeah. Or at least somebody to give the audience some indication of how the hell to view this. Um, but, yeah, I, it just felt a bit scattershot in its approach and shaky in its craft to nail its targets as hard. But, but again, you know, what is, what is art and what is satire? And, 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 and again, it's that sort of – it leads me it, – it's a very, for, want of a, for lack of a better term, millennial film, like in terms of that irony and in terms of that is this sincere or is it not sincere? Is it, is it deconstruction or is mm. it, you know, mm. an investigation? And, and, and it's as frustrating as that sounds to me. I actually – I did enjoy it even though I did find it uneven. Mm. Like I would, you guys were talking about, you know, Netflix on a on a Friday night. Yep, I would have happily watched this Netflix on a on a Friday night, and I would have been like, oh yeah, that was weird. Got things to think about, got things to chat about, but I wouldn't have been like, this is Oscar, no. you know, depth performance, etc. But it's definitely going for something different, and mm. I love that she's made this. You know, obviously on the sn- smell of oily rag with her, you know, with her mates in LA, and there's a lot of LA indie figures in this as well who are quite well known. Like Chase Williamson is mm. is quite a prolific mm. LA indie actor. There's guys like Macon Blair, like Keith Paulson, who are you know who who are in a lot of these sort of um, LA fringy kind of film area. So you know, like I, I yeah, like you guys, I just I really admire the 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 ambition of this but I, the the execution while it worked for me at times didn't work for me all the way around i agree <laughs> so <laughs> i blame society is now screening at selected independent cinemas you're listening to primal screen on triple r independently yours triple r 102.7 You're back with Primal Screen on Triple R with Stuart Richards, Fee Wright, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. 
Now, please join us in the cinema for our final film. Parce que ce shit là que tu leur vends, il est à eux. Il y a vraiment quelque chose de paradoxal chez toi. Hein. Bonjour. Tu dégages une confiance en toi, ça m'impressionne. Tu me fais penser à des mecs que j'ai de coffrer. You understood that, right? <laughs> <laughs> the Godmother is the 11th... Uh, oh, sorry. Uh, uh, Godmother is directed by uh, Jean... Uh, now, oh, no. He's, 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 missed, he's messed it up. Um, sorry, I had the details for another film written in there. Uh, it's directed by Jean-Paul Salomé. Um, pa- uh, Patience, played by Isabelle Huppert, is an underpaid, overworked French-Arabic translator in charge of phone surveillance for a na- narcotics police unit. When she realises she knows the mother of one of the drug dealers, Patience decides to cover for him and gets herself more and more deeply involved in the world of drug trafficking. Soon she is using her insider knowledge and police resources to build her own crime network and earns the name Mama Weed. Fee, did this have you rethinking your side hustle? Well, it was kind of the French Breaking Bad sort of thing, wasn't it? But um, I have to say, French cinema loves both moral clarity and moral ambiguity. And because of that, I had no idea which direction this would go in. And I, I loved it for that. I don't know what everyone else thought, but I I, um, I just, I mean, I would watch Isabelle Huppert just read the phone book, to be honest. I don't even speak French. I would read, I would listen to her without subtitles with the French phone book and it'd be, <laughs> I'd be fine with it. Uh, yes, but what, what were uh, other people's, other people's thoughts? I would watch any film featuring Isabelle Huppert, like angrily, you know, stomping down the street as well. <laughs> Um, in like really like wonderful garments. Um, I read that some of her headscarves that she wears in this were Hermes. Yeah, they look um, the Hermes colours. There was the Hermes gold. Yes. So good. Um, I did really enjoy this and I particularly liked uh, the friendships that she developed between other women, such as mm-hmm. the nurse who looks after her mum and uh, the woman who uh, like runs the building, Colette. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I particularly loved those moments. I thought mm. that was excellent. Um, and, you know, they're all surrounded by really stupid men who kind of bumble <laughs> around. Um, but the centra- there were some moments where there were glaring plot holes mm. and the action sequences were just so incredibly stupid. <laughs> um, where, like, there's one bit where a security camera just conveniently breaks for no reason whatsoever, purely just as a narrative device so she can convincingly get away. Um, There are some moments where I think it just gets more and more stupid, but I think that's the point, I think. Mm. Um, Yeah, it's a crime caper. Um, I enjoyed it. It's good. Yeah, I sort of felt that I'd look, like you two, Isabelle Huppert is, of course, awesome and delightful. Um, and this crime comedy, yeah, it, it uses her mischievous, mischievous pixie-like presence to great mm. effect. It's the thing, like, you know, she's starred in so many, you know, kind of desolate, hard-hitting dramas as well that it's always a delight to see her playing, mm. like, you know, small and mischievous and just kind of, you know, getting away with stuff. Um, but I think other than some slight engagement with France's often discriminatory attitude towards its Algerian and Arabic citizens... I don't know if there's that much to distinguish this 
like other than like it's kind of it's it feels like a very standard kind of programmer to me. Mm. Like it feels like it it moves at an ambling pace. It never quite flies. It's it's always engaging, and a lot of that is because of Huppert because she's so great. And the um the the gentleman that plays the um cop is uh, quite fun too. Um, I I actually really enjoyed their their back and forth. Mm. There's there's a moment um where she casually shoplifts in a yes. in a museum and i was watching this movie going your your casual indifference to shoplifting in front of your police partner <laughs> like this is just i i loved it was it was just the most French moment that I could imagine, and this is a movie that has a line in within the first five minutes. Oh, I'm I'm not depressed about work; it's existential. You know, like this is <laughs> literally where this film takes you, and I, I I kind of enjoyed its ambling quality. But you're right; it is it is um, standard in in many respects. Like there was no standout shots in particular ways. Besides watching her walk down the street, there was nothing that made me go, "Oh my gosh, I have to! I want to watch this scene." Right again, right now. Mm. There were none of those those moments besides the the enjoyment in the moment. Yeah, it's it's very um, you know like and, and it sort of runs through. And I, I like the fun detail. You know, her she's mm. it's revealed fairly early on that she's a daughter of a criminal, and it's mm. all sort of you know. And it's so obviously it's like implied that this is kind of in her blood. You know, it's, mm. uh, and I do kind of enjoy that sort of stuff. It's just that you know like. The the action and the procedural stuff is is pretty standard. It it seemed to me like the kind of film that would be caught up amongst the annual crush of the Alliance Francaise mm. French Film Festival lineup, mm. and is sort of quickly forgotten thereafter, if not mm. for Huppert's star charm. And you know, there's a great dog in this. There's DNA, the the, the drug yeah. sniffing dog, and like I said, yeah, like the um, watching her play video games as well. <laughs> Who would have thought yes. that I would have that loved watching her play COD? Like this is just <laughs> not something that I ever expected that I would say out loud. Let alone on the radio. It's it, <laughs> it's an inventive way to run a run a drug deal. That's for sure. One thing that I want to get your opinion on is because, and I looked online to see if there were any reactions to this, but um, it could just be me. But I mean, she is, as far as I'm aware, um, an Anglo-Saxon woman. Mm-hmm. Um, she's white. She's Caucasian, and she, in the film, pretends to be of Moroccan descent, or she's playing a woman of Moroccan descent. And throughout the film, to you know, get into her criminal gear, she dons the hijab. And um, I, I don't know. Like, that, I wasn't sure if I was just being a bit too sensitive, or if that was just a bit off color, or. I don't, I, I don't know, know like, if it was but, criminal garb. I think it was just more to to um, to mesh within the community and to. I had I, I did have a similar thought with as you, Stu, particularly because I I am not up to date at the moment where this issue is at, but hmm. I believe that France was potentially going to ban the hijab at various points. Okay. So I don't know if it was, um, and I haven't actually read up on this either, but I, I had the thought of, yes, is this a, a white woman? And she talks about her accent and where her accent is from specifically when she's mm. speaking Arabic as opposed to what her accent is when she speaks French. Mm. Um, but then when she's wearing the hijab, she definitely wears like big sunglasses and things to kind of cover up um, her her skin her skin tone. Uh, but then at the same time, I was wondering, is this also a comment on France's plans to try and ban ban mm. the burqa, ban the hijab? Um, mm. Almost like a defiant, let's get France's, one of France's biggest stars. To wear one. To wear one throughout yeah. the film and be the hero of the film. Yeah, because that would be a very um, French uh, 
you know, kind of way to cope with someone something being banned. Mm. Yeah, because the headscarf she wears are stunning. Mm. They're so, and beautiful. that's the thing. Yeah, it's mm. made to look glamorous. Mm. It's made. Oh, yeah, yeah. She's she just drips glamour, especially even when she's like carrying like kilos of hash. You know, she's got these big suitcases <laughs> and these stiletto heels. And part of the humour is watching her just be so inappropriately dressed to be lugging this stuff around Paris. <laughs> yeah. and, and it's always the old. You know, it's always the um, the um, Arabic side that we're on, the Moroccan mm. side that we're on. You know, mm. it's like they're mm. um, the cops are kind of uh, portrayed as kind of brutal and or ridiculous. Um, and there are the most inappropriate spots to do drug deals. I mean, I've yes. never done one, but out the front of a prison or <laughs> in a really busy street. But just... lingerie shop. <laughs> in front of a cinema because... The, the French would totally do that. Um, that, you know, but, but who'd expect it? That's the whole thing, Stewie. Like, who would expect to look there? Yeah. Um, there were, there were some, some um, oh, it was maybe one or two moments where she um, very cleverly does use the, like, has relationships with both the police and the dealers and then also relies on the trust that being an older woman brings to play both off each other. And I thought that was really smooth, you know, also that they don't expect her to get good at playing video games. Mm. There's all of these – this all plays on the fact that she's an older woman of a certain age and she talks about age – Throughout the film, that anyone over thirty is considered old, yeah. with the way that these young men are talking, I really enjoyed the fact that she just continually um, was unexpected, no matter which group she was interacting with. Besides Colette and the nurse, mm. Colette, who had that line, um, "Talking doesn't cook rice," which I really <laughs> yeah. also really enjoyed, <laughs> which really true. just sums up her character entirely. I yeah. feel. Yeah, like at the at the wedding party, you know, two men are brutally shot in front of children and all the wedding guests, and she's like, "Oh, just wheel them out. Let's party. <laughs> yeah, get them up. Let's go." Like, yeah. chop, chop. You're uh, you're making me enjoy this more in retrospect. Um, <laughs> so the Godmother is now screening at Palace, uh, most Palace and uh, independent cinemas. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Triple R. You've been listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Fee Wright, Stuart Richards, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. We checked out The Woman in the Window, now streaming on Netflix, I Blame Society, now screening at selected independent cinemas, and The Godmother, a.k.a. Mama Weed, now screening at most palace and independent cinemas. Next week... All things going well. Kate Fitzpatrick and Stephen A. Russell will be joining us again as we go silent for A Quiet Place Part 2. Look into uh, the life and work of David Gopalil in the documentary My Name is Gopalil. And uh, check out some pure, uncut Takashi Miike madness with First Love. A huge thank you to Morty Osborne for editing the Primal Screen podcast, to Carl Chapman for panelling the show and providing producing assistance. Thank you both, Fee and Stewie, for joining me tonight. It's been a blast. Uh, thanks for having me. Oh, it was such a beautiful first time on the show. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 